Well, good morning, everybody. I am uh, so glad to be here with you. Last week, um, I was able to go to youth camp with uh, Gabriel and Natalie and, and uh, some of our, our young people and just had a great time. They had a great time. Natalie and Gabriel did a fantastic job leading them, teaching them, making sure they had plenty of adventure. They were kayaking and shooting guns and climbing mountains and doing everything that made me incredibly exhausted. So um, I, uh, I appreciate the young, the, the, not only the young people of our church, but the younger-than-me people that lead them. So um, I'm very grateful for that. Because of that, knowing that I would be gone all week, I asked someone to, um, to just take the pulpit this morning because I trusted him to do so. Um, I asked Jim McLemore to share the word with us today. He has been a part of our church. He's in, in a weird sort of way. He's been a tr- part of our church for well over a year and a half or so, right? And uh, just because he'd been coming with family and just in God's providence, he moved from Tohoka to Lubbock. And, um, and when he moved, he, he made us his home church, became a member and has been so uh, helpful. He leads our Sunday discussion groups. Um, he, he does uh, teaching on Wednesday nights, which has been, just been fantastic. And so uh, we, we, the three of uh, the elders, agreed that it would be very appropriate to let him share the gospel with you this morning um, from our study in Mark. And so I wanted you just to to uh, uh, be able, since this is his first time behind the pulpit on a Sunday morning, to be able to uh, introduce him to you and just uh, I encourage you to to uh, pay close attention and, and give him the encouragement he needs to do this. But as is our custom, we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'm going to read our text for you this morning. Um, if our text is found in the book of Mark, chapter 15, and uh, we're going to read verses 33 through the end of the chapter in verse 47. If you don't have a Bible, um, you you will find uh, you can use one of the the blue Bibles in the back of the chairs. And I can't remember the page number four ninety eight. It'll be on page four ninety eight where we'll be reading today. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please by all means take that with you. We want to give that to you as a gift. Um, so if you would read with me, read along with me, um, uh, verses thirty three through forty seven of Mark chapter fifteen. The Bible says. And, uh, the, and then, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he, he is calling Elijah. And when, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were, there were also many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. 
When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Thus says God's word. All right. Would you pray with me just real quickly? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have together. And I pray that your word would be true, that it would go forth and it would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and that we would be renewed by it. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Okie doke. So, this is my first time, as everyone has already been informed. <laughs> um, this is really kind of a difficult passage for me to be my first time on. I think we um, are seeing here a scripture passage that is probably one of the most weighty that we could come to in scripture. Uh, not most, not the most weighty in that it's more important than any other scripture. We know that the word of God is, is, is breathed out by him. All of it's useful for training and correcting in righteousness. But this is more weighty in that all the things that we see in, in scripture, the, the whole, all the promises, all of the goal of the law of Moses, the hope of heaven, the promises of God from, from Eden, the promise of deliverance by crushing Satan's head all the way to the promise of New Jerusalem in the end of the book. All of these things tend to balance all of their weight heavily right here in this passage. We are in especially on the first few verses that we're dealing with. Uh, Paul said in uh, Romans 1, as he was talking to the Roman church, he wanted to preach the gospel to them. They were already a church that was established. Their faith had gone out into the world, but he wanted to preach the gospel to them anyway. And the question it begs is, why would he want to preach the gospel to someone who already knows the gospel? And I think the answer is pretty clear. For Paul, the gospel is everything. He says to the Corinthians, he tells them in two places, almost back to back, I wanted to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so we see not only that the gospel is central for him, that he sees in the gospel, central to the gospel, is the crucifixion. There's so much about Christ. He did so much. He did miracles. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He did a lot of things to, to give gifts to his church. But in Paul's mind, in so many places, his emphasis is on Christ crucified. That is the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel would be the crucifixion 
But the heart of the crucifixion would be what is happening right here in these next few verses. We're going to take a kind of 30,000 foot overview of it a little bit, but there are weighty things that I think we really need to delve into a little bit. I want you to remember a few things as, as we kind of fly over. The things that stuck out at me that I think are important elements that, have, that should be remembered is that the element of the darkness, the element of the cry, the witnesses, and the scoffers. And these are the things that I want us to pay attention to a little bit here as we go forward. I don't want us to also come to this. I want us to be able to see the Word of God afresh this morning. As we're coming to this, it's so easy for us to read um, these passages that we already know so well uh, as Christians. Some of us may not, but uh, most of us here probably know this pretty well. I don't want us to read it with such a familiarity that we don't grasp that this is real. It's the testimony of what has actually taken place. This is the crux of our whole entire faith. And really, as Christians, I know for me, as I've grown in my faith and in my walk with God in sanctification, I don't find myself going to plateaus and heights in God that don't bring me right back to the foot of the cross. It's a deeper understanding of the cross. It's a deeper understanding of what was done there. The elements there that we always talk about as Reformed people, we're going to find there God's holiness, His justice, His righteousness, His love and His mercy. At the cross we find that these things kiss in Christ His justice, His mercy, right along with the sinfulness and wickedness of man. So as we go into this, keep those things in mind. And I'm going to try to brush through this real quick because we don't have forever and there is so much that could be said. But I want to do a little quick review and touching on the the issue of the darkness All of this, if we remember going back a a few verses, this all was kicked off. Everything that's happening at the crucifixion, what Jesus is suffering, what he is going through, um, what he was born to go through, all of this is kicked off by one act of deep betrayal. We know going back to Judas, prior to that, everything was just talk. God is, Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to happen. They're trying to figure out, you know, what's he talking about. They think it's metaphor. But Jesus knows what's coming. He says that for this hour, I was born. And he said he's not going to take, he's not going to to move away from taking the cup that is put before him. And so it starts with this betrayal. And, And in Luke 22, 53, Jesus says to um, uh, sorry, I lost his name for, for a minute. Judas. There we go. Jesus says to Judas, 
This is your hour when darkness reigns. So at this point, and we know that darkness, darkness has no power against God. God is in control of everything. What did the Jesus say to Pilate when he was on trial? Pilate took him aside and says, don't you know I have the power to kill you or to let you go? And Jesus' powerful answer to him was, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. And in that statement, I want us to also remember something that is very prevalent here. It's not stated didactically, but I think as we go through it, we can see this there, and that is the sovereign, eternal plan of God. It's unthwartable. It's unassailable by the powers of darkness. In fact, darkness is actually a tool in his hand to accomplish what he has desired to accomplish from eternity past. We see in Revelation 13 that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world and that his children are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. So darkness, although it rains here, it rains because God said to. And out of this darkness and this betrayal is an unimaginable flood of blasphemy and mockery and hatred. And I want us to take some time to think about what Jesus then begins to go through. And the cross is about more than just the physical suffering and the emotional suffering they went through. But the emotional suffering and the physical suffering is a part of it. It's, it's a side of a two-sided coin. You have the suffering that is done under the hand of man and the suffering that will ultimately be done under the hand of God himself, his own father. But here it begins. Laws are broken even. The, uh, the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Caiaphas, it's like they're in a fever pitch to destroy Jesus, so much so that they begin to just absolutely sin against and blaspheme the very God they claim to be serving. They produce false witnesses. They rush to trial against their own laws. They do this sneakily at night. And they do that... Uh, well, there's probably something I probably shouldn't say there. It's a little political, but... Uh, it reminds me of some things that go on in our government. We kind of shut out some people behind closed doors so that you get a favorable vote. And Caiaphas is doing all of this as the high priest and is probably acting as wicked as any man has ever acted at this point. And this is all directed at Jesus, which portends what is going to come very shortly. All of this vehemence, all of this wickedness, man's anger and hatred is pointed directly at Jesus. There's this unholy marriage that slowly emerges here in this, uh, in this point where the leaders of Israel and Pilate quickly become one in their efforts to kill Jesus. Pilate has a feckless attempt to try to save Jesus 
for a moment, but his heart's not in that. And he quickly hands Jesus over to be crucified. It reminds me of Psalms 2 when when it says that, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. This is exactly what we see taking place right here. Something written hundreds of years before is telling exactly what's going on to Jesus. So they are covered and controlled by so much hatred for Christ. It's like a fever pitch. It's, it doesn't even matter to them that they are, that Jesus has produced all of the signs and the miracles that they themselves asked for. They wanted a sign, they wanted a miracle, but they're completely blind because of their jealousy and envy, frankly, because Jesus was producing the works that they could not. There's a place in John 10 where they even pick up stones. John 10, 31 through 38. They pick up stones and they are going to stone him. And Jesus kind of sarcastically is saying, Okay, I've shown you a lot of good works. Which one of them are you stoning me for? That's pretty ridiculous sounding. But um, this is what he said. And they said, We don't stone you for a good work. They're acknowledging at least, that there is some good works there. We don't stone you for a good work, but because you claim to be God. And the problem with that is what's wrong with that claim, especially since the good works are going right along with it. But, he says, if I don't do the works of the Father, don't believe me. But if I do do them, even if you don't believe me, at least believe the works So Jesus has plenty to go on that people can believe in. He has a lot of people following him at the moment. But they're blinded by their hatred. And to add insult to injury in this whole thing, they hand him over to Pilate. What does a Gentile have to do with judging one of God's people? He hands him over to a Gentile. And, of course, we know the story. He's scourged. He's mocked. He is beaten beyond recognition. And this is something that, it's heavy, it's weighty. This is something that we don't really need to skip over so quickly. Because here we begin, it's even in our confession that we believe in the Apostles' Creed that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's there's something about this underneath the... The lowest of the low, the Gentile, the unclean, he suffers a judgment from God beginning with the lowest. And a judgment that brings a pain that is beyond comprehension. He's scourged, he's mocked, and finally after a while he is crucified. And he's put on the cross at the third hour. This trial began early in the morning, and he's been up pretty much all night. And he hangs on the cross, and he suffers for three whole hours before we get to where we are right now. Those three hours are excruciating for him, and he spends them hanging 
almost suffocating in pain we can't even imagine. And that's not the worst, it's just the beginning. I want us to think about Christ on the cross. I want us to take the time to think about what He's doing up here. We're calling this the crux of our faith. We're calling this the the anchor for our faith. It's what's happening right here on the cross. This has the ability... To break you when you see it. There's a lot of scripture that we can go to, and there's a lot of teaching that we can get from the scripture that that offers practical solutions to life. It can give you practical instructions on what you do. But then there are those meaningful, deep truths that are fundamental to who God is as the being who created everything. This is one of them. And all we can do is come to them and behold. There's nothing to do here. But don't run and behold what is happening to the Son of God who was sent here to do this, ordered to do so, gladly did so from the foundation of the world. We need to behold this. This is what will change our life. It's what will open our heart if we can see it with the eyes of faith that God gave us. So this is just the beginning. And we come into now the text that we read this morning. And the first, the whole nail that this entire thing hangs on is right here in the first few sentences. Says, when in the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We now see a darkness that comes. We started with the darkness that was inaugurated, a reign of darkness in this cup that Jesus began to drink with the deep betrayal of his greatest, one, not his greatest friend, but obviously one of his close friends. So his deep betrayal begins the reign of darkness. And with it comes the wrath in the hand of man. Underneath the direction of God to be sure, but it is one that comes from man. But here we've got something that goes a way deeper than what man can do to Christ. We have this other darkness that comes on the scene and it comes in a miraculous way. I think it's important right here to remember when this has taken place in the life of Israel. Israel is having this take place in their borders during their festival of Passover. And we talked about all of the law and all of the promises of God, all of these things weighting down, hinging on this, they all point to, they all flood like a, a million battering rams toward a single door. That door is Christ. And that whole law comes here. And we see a, an inkling of this 
God in His sovereignty. And this is, some of this is so miraculous to me to read the scripture and get some of this stuff is overwhelmingly convincing to me of the God of the Bible and of the salvation that we proclaim. Because here we see that God is orchestrated from before time when and where and how Jesus is going to be crucified for our sins. The law of Moses has a... The, the most basic sacrifice in the law of Moses is probably the most tedious one. 365 days out of the year, the law of Moses required that the priests offer a sacrifice every day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. The morning sacrifice was done at the third hour, same hour that Jesus was put on the cross. The hour of prayer in between the sacrifices was at the sixth hour. This is the hour that the darkness fell. The darkness fell at the sixth hour and says that it went until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour is when the evening sacrifice was to be made. And we see here something that is beautiful and it's terrible. That God from time, eternity past, He determined that Jesus would be crucified. And not only would He suffer, He would suffer twice. Once from the hand of man and ultimately from the hand of God. His rejection was double bad. It was infinitely destructive, it was a pain that we can't imagine. The the physical suffering is enough, but what we see portended in this darkness is something altogether different. And this is what made Jesus bleed in the garden, sweats of blood, because He, in His humanity, couldn't bear what was going to happen in his separation from the Father. And I want to, as a side note, also say, you know, I've heard it said that, you know, the cross of Jesus Christ is is evidence of your value before God, that you're worth something to him and that's why he died for you. That is not what the cross is saying. The cross of Jesus Christ is showing how utterly wicked we are. It has nothing to do with building up your value. It has everything to do with showing how wicked and how deep that iniquity goes. Mainly because of who it was that had to pay the price. It wasn't a lamb. It wasn't any of these other things that we see in the law of Moses. It was the living Son of God who came and took on human flesh. And the first time 
that I can think of, we see God taking on the image of man. You know, man took on the image of God when he was created and he messed it up. But God, to save us, had to take on the image of man. And it wasn't just being made in the likeness of sinful flesh, as Paul said. It was right here where he finally had imputed onto him us, our nature and our wickedness. And it was because of that that it had to be Jesus Sorry about that. Um, So, he comes and he fulfills that. Not only that, he's not only fulfilling that sacrifice, but he is also becoming the Passover lamb just sacrificed. He is the Passover lamb. This day was thrice holy. For the daily sacrifice, for the Passover, and for the Sabbath that He is for the people of God. Thrice holy. Not only thrice holy, because of the thrice holiness of this moment, it is thrice wicked that man has done this to Christ. To the innocent one. So darkness comes at this hour of prayer, and it lasts for three hours. This is punctuated by the fact that this event is an actual supernatural event. This is not metaphor. This isn't something that we can explain away. And this is why I went before when we got started. I wanted to say I want this to I want this to be real to us again. I want it to be real to me that this happened somewhere around two thousand years ago. That God Yahweh bore flesh and He hung on that cross, and a darkness that came from God settled over Him on that cross. The evidence of this, the witness of this is unbeknownst to a lot. I don't know if you knew this, but it became, you know, when I first found out about it, it was very eye-opening. I had no idea that there was such a wide uh, source volume for the evidence of this darkness that took place at the, at the crucifixion. There are scads of historians that are accepted by Christians and non-Christians alike that cannot get around the, the fact that there was a worldwide darkness that took place this day. This is a testimony that Jesus or that God the Father left for us to understand what it was He was doing to His Son. Luke tells us that the sun's light failed. They didn't hide. They didn't go somewhere. This light failed. There are historians that 
describe this happening simultaneously with the sun and the moon at the same time. Something to think about if you're tempted to say this is probably an eclipse, it's probably some kind of uh, storm that covered it. Uh, that's been debunked many, many times. This actually happened. Some of the evidence is, uh, you can probably look this up on your own, but there were three the most um, referred to people over this is uh, three historians that were first and second century historians that lived at the time, and Flagian, Thales, and Africanus. They all testify to the fact that this darkness took place. But I wanted to not go deep into those woods, but I, I did want to bring up one that is very this is one of the most popular ones because it's verifiable and it's just undeniable. Uh, during the time of Christ at his death, there was a Chinese emperor. And I guess if you look at a globe, you can kind of see how far away that was. There was a Chinese emperor. His name was Guangwu. And he reigned during the time of Christ's death and resurrection. The fact that he and astronomers, he and his astronomers knew Christ was God is shown in Chinese historical records dated around 31 A.D. And also in the history of Latter Han Dynasty, Volume 1, the Chronicles of Emperor Guangwu, the seventh year, he writes, Yin and Yang have mistakenly switched and the sun and moon were eclipsed. The sins of all the people are now on one man. Pardon is proclaimed to all under heaven. This is one drop in the bucket of the things that are available out there. This wasn't a natural happening. It wasn't an eclipse. God miraculously darkened the sun and the moon. And it was for a reason. So this darkness lasts for three hours. Jesus is completely silent during this time. He's hanging there, having been up there by the time he gets to the ninth hour. He's been hanging on the cross for six hours. Half of that time, maybe all of that time being spent, ridiculed, spat upon, treated poorly by the scoffers. It's like, do they have anything else to do? They spent all day there scoffing at Jesus. I can understand why... Mary was there, and the women who loved him, I can understand why they were there, but they spent all day scoffing at him. That really wasn't what bothered him as much, though. It's this darkness, and what this darkness means, and what it pretends. And we'll get to that in a minute. But we get to the ninth hour, and Jesus cries with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That should shatter your heart. We begin to see here at the ninth hour, the evening sacrifice... Jesus cries out at the evening sacrifice, knowing that it's about done. 
And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry of desperation from him is not, it's not just for him. He definitely feels the pain. He feels the desperation. In this moment, Jesus is alone. He's completely alone. Right where I should have been. He's completely alone. And his father's forsaken him. And we begin to see a little bit of what this darkness was all about. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people around, the scoffers, they're saying, He's calling out to Elijah. And this has been puzzling to me. And I've, I've read some scholars that it puzzles them a little bit too. They, they miss what he's saying. They think he's calling out for Elijah. But he's calling to God. And it's as if they don't even know their own language. Of course, in Aramaic, it's a little bit different. Aramaic is Eloi, but in Hebrew, God, as spoken in the psalm that he's quoting, is Eloah. So it's a little bit different. But if they just listened to his quote, and if they knew their own scriptures, they might have been able to figure out what he was saying. If we go to Psalm 22.1, and we read... Not just that quote, but a couple of sentences before it, or a little bit after. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer me. And by night, but I find no rest. This is the state of the soul of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. also find interesting here that my God, my God, he's not, he's not angry. It's not in a fit. He's using a term of endearment and affection and intimacy towards God. We see it all through the scriptures. Jesus says twice, he says, Simon, Simon, when he's correcting him. And he does the same thing with Martha, Martha, Martha. It's not a, it's not a sign of anger. It's a, it's a sign of love. You also see it when God, Yahweh, calls out Abraham and says, Abraham, Abraham. So here we see the first glimpse into what he's suffering. And he's suffering utter despair and utter abandonment. We are looking now into the heart just a little bit of what Jesus had to go through. So the bystanders are saying, he's calling to Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge and they gave him some sour wine that may or may not have been an act of kindness. I doubt that it was. But he does this. They put it on a reed and they give it to him to drink. And they say, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So here we are. Right at the last death throes, and we still have the mocking. Even the Romans have recorded many times. They they used to crucify people all the time. But there were many times that the Romans, 
at the end showed some kind of mercy to someone. But that's not what's happening here. He's not getting any mercy. In John, we find it, we, we see a little bit something different here. John adds in this point, he says, knowing that all was finished and to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. Here's another little tidbit of how Jesus is not only the sacrifice, but as God is controlling what's going on. He does this and he, he really is inciting them to give him some, something to drink. And he does that so that it'll fulfill the scripture. That scripture's in Psalm 69, 21. And if we go just a few verses before 69, 21, he starts with, you know my reproach and my name and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So Jesus here is fulfilling Scripture still at the last. And then we get into the end of what has been taking place. Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And there it's it was tempting for me to just stay right here, but there's there's too much to talk about and I wanted to bring in Luke and John on this because this loud cry was not just a scream. It was a declaration. Luke and John bring to light this. In Luke, it says that then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And John, when Jesus has received the sour wine, he says, It is finished. I think the indication here is that we have a loud blood-curdling cry from Christ that includes these two statements. It is finished and I commit my spirit into your hands. This has been from start to finish the work of God. Start to finish. This is another sign that God is in control John 10:18 Jesus says, "No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father." Acts 2:23 This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed By the hands of lawless men. This is the work of God. He's doing it on His own. And we're observing it. 
So what does it mean that it is finished? What is this statement that he's making that he's cried out at this time? You may have already heard some teaching on this. Uh, it's, it's a popular Greek word to teach on. It's tetelestai. Uh, I'm sorry, I got a little tongue-tied. Tetelestai. This is an accounting term. It means paid in full. It really was a strange thing for Jesus to say from the cross. And probably, more than likely, was the first inkling to the uh, Roman soldiers that something was not taking place the way they thought it would. This, this something isn't right here. That's not something a dying man cries out. It is finished. It is paid in full. So, why would he say this? What is paid in full? This is where we are going to very quickly back up and begin to talk about this darkness. Of course, as Christians, we know what that is. It's our sin debt. It's what, it's what we owe God because of our wickedness. We owe Him our life. We owe Him the punishment of our life. That's the only thing that we have to offer. There's nothing we can do to make things right with God. But here we have a clear statement from Jesus Himself on the cross as to why we have this formulation of imputed righteousness. Why Paul talks about it. He says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. This is what's happening right here. The darkness, it's a, it's a symbol, but it's a symbol of something that's real, that's actually happening. This darkness, it reminds us of what happened in Egypt. The darkness in Egypt that came upon Egypt was the last plague just before the plague that took the firstborn. And we see that this darkness is connected to Passover in that way. And all through the Old Testament, the darkness, God can show up in different ways. He, he shows up as light. He is light. We see that in John in a lot of places. He's the light of the world. He, he, he came into the world. He was the light of the world. He was the light of men. But there's also times when God shows up in darkness. I find it uh, peculiar that even on Mount Sinai, when He's inaugurating His own people, He shows up in thick darkness on Mount Sinai. And fear and trembling are involved. And not being able to look at the face of Moses. We also see that uh, darkness is a part of God's judgment. Matthew 25, 30, in one of the parables, Jesus says, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Second Peter 2, 17, these are springs, talking about false teachers and the wandering stars. It says, these are springs without water and mists driven by the storm for whom the black Darkness has been reserved forever. Isaiah 8.22 Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness 
the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Job 5, 13 through 14, he captures the wise by their own shrewdness, and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. By day they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in the night. And one that everybody knows in Joel 2.31, speaking of the last days, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. I find that very strange that that says that. And that's what happens at the crucifixion. It's what happens at the crucifixion over Christ. A proclamation of judgment. This is where God the Father is bringing hell itself upon Christ. Christ is at this point separated from God. He is separated from His Father. And I've heard, and it may be tempting for us sometimes to think things like this, that You know, there's been an awful lot of people born on the earth. There's been an awful lot of sin happening on the earth. How can out of billions of sinners sinning and dying, somehow be offset by one man dying, hanging on a cross for three hours, and then it's over? I mean, for crying out loud, he knows he's going to be raised from the dead. It's not that big a deal. What is it that that makes Jesus sacrifice So worthy. Because if you take all of mankind, and if you take all of the good works of God, all of His creation, all of the the many worlds He's created, if you take every wonderful, beautiful thing that God has made and done and you put it all in a scale, it cannot budge the weight of the value of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of who He is. He is God in the flesh. He became man and He was made in our image and took on our sin and his value is far beyond anything we can begin to quantify it was the holy one of god it was yahweh in the flesh who chose to come down and be the one to become like us so that he could buy us back so the infinite god who knows no bounds, the infinite God whose value is boundless, whose power is boundless, whose omniscience is boundless, but most importantly, His holiness is of a nature we cannot conceive. He is completely other than His creation and only good. And it is His self-existence that describes who He is. He is holy. He needs no other. And if there is anything that is, it must be from Him. And it is that one who took on flesh. 
And he died for us. And yes, one millisecond of his suffering separation from his father is enough to save a billion earths. We, we don't know who God is as a people in America, in a lot of churches. I confess, I haven't known who God is. We don't know who God is. And that's our problem. He is holy. His holiness is beyond, it's, it's beyond description. Even the most holy of the holy angels of God cannot look at Him. Not because they're ugly. Not because they're sinful. But because God's holiness is of such a nature that even the greatest of the angels must bow in humility and awe and fear. That's who died on the cross. That's who has taken on a nature like ours. But beyond that, the the wonder of wonders that He would take the time to let sin be placed upon Him. That's beyond comprehension. This is what's happening at the cross. So, God provides more evidence of this truth. More stuff is going to take place because of what's happened here. Not only was there darkness that was a testament from the Father that His anger was being poured out upon Christ. It says in Isaiah 53 that it pleased the Father to crush Him. Why would it please the Father to crush Jesus? Because He's just. And Jesus willingly took upon our sin and because God is just, it pleased Him to crush sin. Because He is just. So what does all this mean? What did it mean that Jesus was crushed? That He paid it all? That's paid in full? What did that mean? There is something that happened right after this. We just continue on. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We all know what this means. We've talked about it plenty of times before. But I myself want to, I want to place myself there and meditate upon that and what, what actually happened. God, again, supernaturally tore the veil in two, right in front of the worshipers. He tore it in two. This happened. This is another one of those things that's that's evidenced in extra-biblical resources. This happened. There was an earthquake. It's not mentioned in this, but there was an earthquake that happened at the same exact time, and the rocks were split. And over against the uh, Mount of Olives on the east side where all of their... Graves were, the vast majority of their graves were over there. The entire half of that, that mountain slid off and all of those 
Closed tombs were opened up. This is recorded in more places than just the Bible. God left a pretty astounding witness for himself that this is real. That this took place. So what we have here is now entering into the area of this text where we're talking about those witnesses that I had talked about. And I, my hope is that what we're doing here is we're somehow vicariously, we are becoming witnesses as well, looking at what happened and being moved by it, being convinced by it. If we don't already have faith that we would put our faith in it. The first witness that we end up post-crucifixion is actually one of the guys that was putting the nails in his hands. So the centurion, and in one of the other gospels, it tells us it wasn't just him. It was several of the centurions there that were keeping guard over Jesus. They stood facing him. They saw the way he breathed his last and all that took place. And the only thing they could say was, truly this man was the Son of God. I probably would have said the same thing. Again, this reminds us that these are actual events. These are things that are to be pondered because as we put our faith in them, it isn't back there. It's Christ in me. It's now that this is real for. And this is the anchor for our faith. I know Jesus is going to raise in a few days, but right now we're just talking about the the terribleness and the horribleness of what happened to him. We need to look at that. So so we go a little bit forward and we get into the next set of witnesses. It's a a little bit lighter here. We see that, you know, the deed has been done. And who's left behind here? I wanted to, I, I think it's good that the gospel writer put this here. We've talked about this before about how Jesus treated women. And it's a whole lot different than the way we see women treated today. And even women back then. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they would follow him and minister to him. And there were also many other women with him. So we have a whole entourage of women here that have come to the cross and they've been with him for a while. It's amazing to see how many women followed him given the the time that they lived in you don't really see the disciples saying much about it nobody's complaining about it so there's it reminds me of what happened with mary magdalene and 
who couldn't stop loving Jesus for his love for her and his forgiveness to her. The biblical view of women is not abusive or burdensome in Jesus' eyes. And they loved him, I'm sure, because of this, but more because he was their savior. Luke, the most reliable historian of his day, most likely gathered much of his information from a lot of these women. When, when he was writing his gospel and parts of Acts, they're mentioned here as witnesses. And aside from the Roman centurion, who would even be a step below Jewish women, you see God kind of starting from the bottom and working his way up here. Starts with a Gentile, and then he mentions the women. And then we come to the prominent men who were looking at him on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea, he was a respectable man, and he he was a member of the council. It says so right here. But um, he was looking for the kingdom of God, and he was a little bit afraid still. Maybe that's one of the reasons he's mentioned last. But uh, he asked for the body of Jesus, and... And as we see in him and in John's account, him and Nicodemus end up burying Jesus in a tomb right there in the same garden that he's crucified in. So these are the witnesses, the scoffers. That's something to think about. The scoffers that we see at Jesus' tomb. I've been talking about them, the scoffers we see at his crucifixion and all along from from the uh, work of Judas and betraying him to the the soldiers that took him off, to the Sanhedrin who condemned him. We're looking at those scoffers and it's so easy, the way I portrayed it a little bit, it's it's easy to see them as as them over there. Those scoffers, that's what they did to Jesus. I wouldn't have done it if I was there. That's not the case. I think what we see in the horribleness of what happened is that they are representative of us and what we are. If it were not for the grace of God and I were there, I probably would have been cast in a stone driving a nail or doing something like that myself. We don't know our own natures. We don't know the depths of our own wickedness. And that wickedness is so deep that without Christ's sovereign work, we would never choose Him. And without His love to free us, the only thing I would want a choice for is what kind of sin I want. That's the only thing I would want to choose from. But thanks be to God that He laid a foundation here to free us from our sin. Thank you.